If you would grab your Bible, turn to the book of Luke. As you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you want to know where I'm going to be next week, of course, you can grab your Bible. And where I leave off today, that's where we'll be next week as we still go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The first time we opened the book of Luke here at the river is back in November of last year. We started teaching and preaching in the book of Luke. And now we're all the way, all the way up to chapter number 8 this morning. And we're going to continue on. We're chugging right along this morning. I just want to remind you that we choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy. It's divine, not human in origin. We here at the river believe in the five solas of the Reformation. And you might say, what is he talking about? Well, back in the 1500s, the 15th century, there was a, a young monk who nailed 95 theses or questions about the church. And at that moment, there was a reformation, a, a reshuffling of the Catholic Church. And that's where the Protestant Reformation came from. That's why we're Protestants this morning. And you're not meeting me over in a little booth in the corner. And I have a little collar on. And I say, okay, go home and say five Hail Marys. And make sure you pay your penance and all those traditions that we lay aside and live by the Scriptures alone. Which happens to be the first of the solas. Sola Scriptura is a Latin phrase. That means the Bible in the Bible alone. That the Christian lives by what the Bible says. Sola fide is a Latin phrase and it means faith and faith alone. That we live simply by faith. Not how we feel. Not by what the culture says. By faith, trust and confidence. You have confidence and trust in the person who made those pews right now. Otherwise you wouldn't be sitting in them. You have faith and confidence in the person coming in the other lane on the highway when you leave church today. You have confidence and trust. Otherwise you would get off the highway and wait for them to pass. You notice that faith is exercised in every facet of your life. I wonder, do you have faith alone and God alone? All this, almost this morning, I want to let you know what our faith is found in. Our faith is not found in the government. It's not found in FEMA, a political party, our denomination, even your pastor or your deacons. This morning, our faith is found in sola Christus, a Latin phrase. That means Jesus alone, just Jesus. I have faith in Christ and Christ alone. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that those are fools who put their trust in princes and kings. But put your hope in God. Uh, this morning, I also want to let you know about sola gracia. It's a Latin phrase that means grace and grace alone. This morning, you are saved simply because of grace. Not because you are warranted it. Not because you earned it. But because God has bestowed His grace upon you. That's the only reason any of us go to heaven. Because of grace and grace alone. And the crowning jewel of all the solas is found in this phrase, sole deo gloria. And that means God alone receives the glory. He receives the glory of you attending church this Sunday morning. He receives the glory of you paying attention to what's being taught and adhering to it, hiding His Word in your heart that you don't sin against Him. He receives the glory of you going home this afternoon, getting that nap. He receives glory of you coming back this evening at a quarterly dinner. He receives the glory of you going to work tomorrow, getting that paycheck to buy them groceries. He, he receives the glory of you getting vacation time or the holidays that are coming out. He receives the glory in all facets of our life and I certainly hope he receives the glory of the preaching and teaching of God's holy word this morning. Once again, we turn to Luke chapter number 8. 
Chapter number 8, we're going to be picking up in verse number 19. If you remember last time we were together, we were looking at the, the, the parables that Jesus taught. Remember, parables is a Hebrew two Hebrew words that are squished together. It, it means to come along beside of and to toss beside. It, Jesus was using parables that were plain. What Jesus was doing is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He was making it explicit. There was no question about what Jesus was saying. He was being plain in his teaching and his preaching. Well, we also read that in Isaiah, God was crying out to Isaiah, Who will I send? And he says, Isaiah perks up in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Here I am, send me. And God tells Isaiah, Go, teach them, and speak that their ears will be closed. Explain that their eyes will be blinded. You might say, Well, it sounds like God is blinding their eyes and stopping up their ears. No, that's not it at all. That Isaiah preached and teached so plainly, so elementary, the elements and the truth of God that people literally stuffed their ears with their fingers and yelled to drown out Isaiah's teaching. That's the truth about Jesus, that he spoke and so way. There was no doubt about it that he said he's the son of God. He spoke the very elements and the principles that we are to abide by. That we're to be faithful to him and him only. And to deny what he says is to be outright rebellious. So we see that in the last parable he spoke about hiding a lamp under a bed or under a jar. That it should shine in such a way that people would have no question about your Christianity. They would know just by your conversation and the way you live what you do on your downtime or how you work or how you serve in your local church they know you're a Christian so that was the last parable but now when Jesus is there teaching there's words that come to Jesus hey your family's outside your mama and them your brother all your brothers are outside they want, they want to talk to you so Jesus explains to them what we find in verse verse number 19 then his mother and his brothers came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. Verse 20. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now I want to remind you, verse 19 tells us, and 20 tells us there's a crowd. And Jesus has been teaching and preaching this crowd. No one ever spoke like Jesus. He was much better than Billy Graham. Oh, he was much better than this preacher. No one ever spoke like him and no one ever will. The master teacher. And this is what he says to his disciples. This is what he says to those who follow him and serve him. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Even though his blood, his relatives were outside. Jesus taught here uh, in verse 21 the doctrine of, a, of adoption. That Jesus is saying to those that follow and adhere to what He says, you're adopted into my family. You're my brothers. You're my family. You're my mother. He's telling those that are listening to His teaching that in the kingdom of God, that the crown of God extends to rebels who ain't even family. To those who are not blood related. That the kingdom of God runs deeper than blood. Ooh, we got this phrase, blood is, blood is thicker than water. But then again, Jesus reaches beyond bloodlines. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Because I am not a Jew. I don't come from a long line of Jews. I tell you what I come from. I come from a long line of, a long line of wife beaters. 
meth heads and drug addicts. I come from bootleggers, horse thieves, slave owners, and slaves. That's where I come from. I have a pedigree that runs in my bloodline of sin, wretchedness, and wickedness. But beyond my heritage of my blood, beyond my last name, beyond all my reputation and where I come from, my background, Jesus extended His mercy to me and adopted me into His family. So no matter what you think of my family, I'm now in the family of God. There's a place for me at the seat. There's a seat for me at the table with the family. He pulls back the table and says, have a seat here like Mephibosheth found in the Old Testament. He was lame and broken. But King David brought him into the family and says, you sit at my table now. I'm a Mephibosheth. I'm crippled and broken. But Jesus made a place for me. Amen. That's just good for me. That I see here that I'm adopted and grafted into the family now. That's what Jesus says. So you can say what you like about me. You can make your assumptions. You can have your opinions. But it only matters what Jesus says. It only matters what He's done. And He has adopted me. He says, those who, the, He says, but He who answered them, my mother and my brothers, are those who hear the Word of God. Now, now, now just because you hear me this morning, don't mean you're in the family. Just because you hear me yelling, I know y'all don't want me to use a microphone because it'll blow you out of the room. Because I know I'm a little loud. But he says, it's not those who hear the Word of God. You might have read your Bible all week. You might have memorized all of the book of Romans. You might even know what the maps in the back mean. You might know where Gilgal is and Golgotha. You might, you might be able to draw pictures of Jerusalem. You might know what the temple looks like, what color the curtains was. You might even know how long Moses' beard was. But it says... Those who hear the Word of God and do it. There's always that Nike. He says, do it. Just do it. you got to do it. You don't talk about it only. But you really do it. You might know drinking Drano is bad for you. You might know that. But if you're drinking Drano, you don't really believe it. You're just drinking. Oh, I don't think this is bad for me. There's no danger in drinking Drano. I know it says those labels, but that's just the government trying to keep me from my freedom. That's what we do with sin. I know the preacher says, don't sleep around. I know the preacher says, don't look at pornography. Don't watch Game of Thrones because it's going it's to compromise my holiness. I know the preacher says, don't gossip because it's venom down into my soul. I know the preacher says that. I, I know the preacher says that I need to be at church as much as possible because I need to grow in holiness and righteousness. But that's just a suggestion. I know Hebrew says, deny not to assemble together. I know it says that. Those are just suggestions. But those who do it, you're the ones who's the family. You're the ones who are growing in righteousness and holiness. Oh, we're getting real quiet in here, but that's okay. But we're going to do it anyway. Amen. Uh, I want to let you know that now we're looking at verse 22. But before we get into verse 22, we're going to go to the verse, all the way down to verse 25 this morning. But I want to let you know, back in the 18th to 19th century, there was an enlightenment that took place between uh, Germany all the way to England. At this moment, I told you as we spoke a little earlier about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, it, it, it took place. That was, that was whenever some godly biblical teachers and preachers started reading the Bible and looked at the Pope and looked at the Catholic Church and said, Hey man, that ain't in the Bible. What you talking about purgatory? What you talking about indulgence? We're going to do what the Bible says. And at that moment, it seems like the dark ages ended. And there was an enlightenment. People started to be able to be free to think without the bondage of the Catholic, when I say Catholic, I mean 
capital C-A-S, Catholic, Roman Catholic. Catholic has two, two, uh, two definitions. One is worldly. Catholic means the world church, Catholic church. Or the Roman Catholic church is the Roman church that's stationed in Rome where the Pope sits on the throne. And he is ministering over the Roman church. Whenever the Roman church had the Protestant Reformation take place inside, that there was a breaking away of the Protestant people who were serving Jesus and not church traditions and regulatory principles that were put in place by bishops and people who are and cardinals and people of high authority. At this point, whole villages started to realize, hey, we can read the Bible in our native tongue. And they started to read the Bible for themselves, starting to understand that Jesus saved sinners instead of paying the Catholic church to stay out of hell. There was an enlightenment that took place. And it lasted until the 18th century. So about 100 years, there was a revival throughout all the known world. And then we get to the 18th century, and then we have people, as far as the pendulum swings to righteousness, we have worldly wisdom that swings the other way. At this point, we have people who have worldly thoughts and carnal ideas and philosophies that rise up in the modern world. They start to teach that there is no God. Because now the superstition and the, the, the rulership of the Pope has now been brought down by the Protestant Reformation. Now a secular thinking starts to enter into the mind of men as they get out of the dark ages. We have a renaissance of painting and art that takes place. At this point, there's a person who rises up named Baron de Holbach. Now, I don't ask me to say that name again, but his name is Baron. And he rises up and he's a philosopher and he's a thinker. However, he's secular. In fact, he starts teaching that there is no God. And he's teaching something that's so ridiculous, even today, it's still taught in our modern universities. It's a spontaneous creation. That's where nothing creates everything. Now, uh, any logical person understands if there's always been nothing, there will always be nothing. But here's how he came to that conclusion. He would find mud puddles away from rivers and away from lakes, and he would observe them. He would start taking notes and he would stand there and form a hypothesis because over time in that mud puddle, tadpoles would appear. And he said, it's magic. It's scientifically proven right here that tadpoles just exploded into existence into this mud puddle. But he would deny any kind of science or any kind of logic that would say that the, the, the eggs of the tadpole got in there somehow. Bacteria, other things could have caused that. The wind catching and throwing and fertilizing those mud puddles. He denied those outright and he stood firm on come, uh, spontaneous creation. And that trickled. It trickled into the 19th century where we had... Uh, well, I want to also let you know that Baron, the one who came up with this idea, he had the moniker... He had a famous moniker he made himself. He had a nickname. His nickname was God's personal enemy. Because he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that the superstition of God in the Bible is gone. There is no reason to, to be afraid of some guy in the sky. There's no reason to be uh, worried about what the Bible says that was written thousands of years ago. So he starts preaching and teaching and evangelism uh, about spontaneous creation. And that spilled over to the 19th century where we get... Great thinkers that rise up like Karl Marx. You meet people like Nietzsche. You're saying, who are these people exactly? For their names go down in history and people forget about them, but they still know the name of Jesus. Amen, preacher. I know, amen. 
These philosophers rise up. Karl Marx tries to replace the state and the government. They try to put the government and the state in the place of God. That's where we get modern communism. We also get people like Sigmund Freud. If you ever heard of Sigmund Freud, he's the founder of modern psychology. He's the one who sat down with me, sat down with you or me, and he'll analyze your childhood, talk about your relationship with your mother and your father. What he was teaching as he comes all the way back from Barron is that there's no need for God anymore. And he explains away why people are religious. He explains away that if you were in trouble and somebody was threatening to kill you, they would put a gun to your head. You would negotiate with them. Hey, I'll give you $10,000 if you don't kill me. I will trade my land and my property to forfeit my life. That, that's how you would negotiate with a known adversary. But whenever it's uh, an environmental, uh, like an earthquake or a tsunami, or a hurricane or a tornado, you can't negotiate with nature. So what the early man would do is carve out images of the earthquake. They would make them into an eagle or a bear or a porcupine and that would represent hurricanes or famine and they would worship that to appease the earthquakes and the, uh, the hurricanes and the tornadoes. So that was his explanation of man trying to negotiate with the environment as it rises up against them. But church, I want to let you know that no matter what Sigmund Freud says, there is a God. In fact, he's right about one thing, that man is very, very religious. If you go to the farthest reaches of Africa, you will find every time there's been an isolated tribe and we just stumble in to find them, that they worship something. You can get archaeologists and dig in the ground, go through many, many different levels of history, finding pottery. You'll find evidences of people worshiping something. And that's very true today, that people are made to worship and they still worship. It just so happens that Sigmund Freud wants to replace God with imaginations to say there is no God, that you're just a chemical reaction of how you feel, that they're just, you're just a bag of bones and meat with no soul, and there's no repercussions on how you live. So I'll point you this morning to Luke chapter number 8, verse number 22. In verse 22 it says, One day he got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came up on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. We'll stop there for a moment and explain away what's going on. I want to let you know here at this lake, was at the base of many mountains. And the current and the wind that would come off these mountains would stir this lake up to be, be very dangerous. But these were experienced fishermen, if you remember, like Peter. They were experienced in being on the water. But we see here that it was overwhelming to them. That they were filling with water. However, you'll notice here in the text that Jesus was asleep. Now this... This morning here at the river, maybe that stir disturbs you. And you, you might even hear a little small voice in your head saying, Look, your Jesus is asleep. But I want to let you understand here, that shows Jesus' humanity. That He got tired in His body. 
even though he was sleeping in his body. We spoke about the, the dualship of Jesus, that he is fully God and all his power and authority, but he was fully man. Now, we must understand how important that is. Because if Jesus is a demigod, which means that he's half God and he's mixed with man, or he's like a mutt, he's like, he's like half chihuahua and half Doberman pitcher. If, he, if he's not fully God and fully man, then he can't help you. He has to be God enough to forgive sins. But he must be man enough to die for your sins. Amen, preacher. So we see here that he was sleeping in the storm. I want to let you know now, at this very moment, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to let you know, he don't need sleep right now, this very moment. How do you know, preacher? Because he's been resurrected with a new body and glory. That he is not confined by hunger. He don't sweat anymore. He's not tired. He don't, he don't feel a certain way. He's not held captive by his body. That he's at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, He ever prays for you and I. Can you imagine a 24-7 type God who prays over you? That He's our mediator, our high priest, who doesn't need to clock out and take a day off. He doesn't need a mental day. He don't need to take a break. He don't need coffee to wake up. Our God is ever on the throne praying for you and I. But here in this moment, before the cross, He was tired and He rested. So you can rest in that, Christian, knowing that He's fully God and fully man. Have you ever thought, how can God relate to me? He's high and lifted up in glory and power. How can He understand what I'm going through? How can He understand that i got achy joints? How can He understand the stress and anxiety that affects me? But I want to remind you, as I have the, the ministry of reminding God's people that Jesus is fully man, that He got tired. He hungered. He thirsted. So He relates to you. He understands you. Whew, that's good to me. When you don't understand me, my Jesus does. So we understand here this morning that He fell asleep and the windstorm in verse 23 came up on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And in verse 24, and they went and woke Him up saying, Master, Master, we perishing. Well, we are perishing. I like we perishing better, but we perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the waging waves and ceased. And there was a calm. In verse 24, the last thing they did was go to Jesus. The last thing. At the storm. Maybe they had confidence and trust in their abilities and their talents of rigging a boat, keeping it afloat. Maybe they were leaning on their uh, background of boat school or their years and years of dealing with nets and catching fish. They, maybe they underestimated the wind as it tore the mast and broke the sails. As they, they looked, the last thing they did is cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. They almost look at Jesus asleep and they say, Do you even care? We're going down. I, I don't know about you, but I've prayed that. I've prayed, God, do you even see what I'm going through? Do you even know? Maybe, Jesus, you're still asleep. Maybe you don't even care. But the last thing they did was cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. Why don't you, instead of gossiping, picking up the phone saying, Woe is me, I'm going through this, trying to gather up sympathy for your situation. Instead of staying in the dungeon, 
with all the other chained individuals go into the throne room of grace and cry out, Master, Master, I'm going through this. I'm perishing. Help me. Instead of lingering at the last moment, waiting and weighing all your other options, take it to the Lord in prayer like the song refers to. Take it to Jesus. Go to Him. Yes. I, I need to call the deacon. I need to call the preacher. I need, they got to come to my house. My dog's sick. I got to get something for my cat. He's got worms. I, I better call the preacher. I, better, I, got, a, I got a toothache. That, there ain't nothing wrong with calling the preacher and the pastor. But thanks be to God, I'm in a mature church like this one. Y'all some grown folk. I don't get many calls of people who are suffering and hurt. And that's okay because you learn to feed yourself, to read your Bible daily by yourself. You don't need me at the kitchen table spoon feeding you your Cheerios so you can get through the morning. You've learned to read your Word by yourself. But now I just want to reiterate, take it to the Lord first. Take it to Him first. Preacher, what you doing? You trying to preach yourself out of a job? Yes. You don't need me as much as you think. You need Jesus more than anything. Take it to Jesus first. For the next 50 years, I'll stand in this pulpit and keep pointing to the shepherd, the master, the master. If you're perishing, take it to Him. If you're broken, take it to Him. If you're confused, take it to Him. You don't know what to do, take it to Him. I don't know where to go, take it to Him. And if you need me personally to tell you that, call me, text me. I'll go to your house and I'll point you to Jesus all over again. I don't have your end all. I don't know all the answers, but I know who does and I'll keep pointing to Him for the next 50, 60, 70 years if He allows me to stand behind this pulpit and preach the truth. Take it to the Master. Yes. Amen. <laughs> he, he awoke as they cried out, Master, Master, we're perishing. Maybe this morning you're in so much trouble you don't even know you're in trouble. Maybe the enemy has crept up around you. You're surrounded. Cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. It's better sooner than later. Don't wait till the darkness starts to poison your mind. Do it today. Do it now. If you're in the pit already, cry out. He hears you there too. Our God can see in the dark. Thanks be to God because that's where He found me. He might have found you at Madison Avenue on the corner with a tuxedo on praising and with a big Bible, but He found me in a dark place. He sought me out, redeemed me, and He's still doing it to this day. So let us learn to cry out, Master, Master, we perish. Unless you intervene, unless you help me, I'm going down. I'm ruined. I'm done. Unless you intervene, unless you do something, Jesus, my children are going to be lost, Jesus, unless you, unless you move. Jesus, I'm shaking. And if you don't catch me, I'm going to go under. Jesus, if you don't steady my mind, it's going to fall apart. Jesus, I perish. Don't let them be the last one you call. Let them be the first. That way, when we come together on a Sunday, and a Sunday evening, and a Wednesday, there could be more praise reports instead of complaints. I just want to say he brought me through. The surgery I thought that was going to take me out, he steadied the hand of the physician. But not only did he steady the hand of the physician, he steadied me through it all. Not only did he help me in my marriage that was on the rocks, he was a lighthouse that showed me, don't crash here, go over here. He brought me through and showed me how to shepherd my children. Lord, if you don't intervene, I'm done. Let us pray like that again. But notice the rest of the story. He says, it says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and ceased. And there was a calm. 
standing on that boat was not just a, a Hebrew a peasant, a carpenter who had calloused hands. Standing there was someone who rebuked the wind and the rain and the billows. They bent beneath His will when He commanded the words over creation. Here stood the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to notice the rest of the text. And He said to them, where is your faith? Jesus asked that to His disciples that are gathered here today. Where is your faith? Is your faith in your beans and bullets and band-aids that you have hid under your bed and your bomb shelter? Is your faith found in your denomination? Is your faith found in your tithing record? Is your faith found in your works? Or is it in Christ this morning? Is your faith found in the government? <laughs> is your faith found in your abilities and your degrees and doctrines that you've earned? Your talents, your treasure, or even your time that you'll invest in whatever you want? Where is your faith? Jesus says to the disciples, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That He commands even the winds, the water, and they obey Him. Sigmund Freud, the founder of pop psychology, said that humanity makes little images and idols because they can't negotiate with the environment. So they, they visualize and they sculpt these pictures of the hurricane, of the waves, the tsunamis, and the earthquakes, and they worship them to appease creation. But standing on this little boat, in the middle of the lake is the one who controls all of the environment. Standing on the boat by the power of His Word told the waves to lay down and they laid down. The tempest stopped screaming because He said, Peace be still. The rain stopped pelting them because He commanded it. But I want you to know their reaction is that they was afraid. They're more afraid of Jesus at this point than they were of the storm. Why? Why would they be afraid of Jesus more than the storm? Because they said, who is this that can control all of creation? Who is this? They're saying He's in a category by Himself. There's no one else like Him. But even creation bends at His will. At that moment, a holy fear fell on them. They realized who was in their presence. Church, I want to let you know that God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent is what the Bible says. That means He's everywhere. But it's just in certain moments that we're aware that we're in the presence of God. Much when we come to church, we pass over the secular is what we say to the sacred, the threshold, that, that place in the door. You know where the foyer is outside and the sacred is on the inside. When we come in and we change the way we talk, we might even whisper because we feel the presence of God here. It, 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 the fact is, is that we're just more aware that there is a God. And we're an awestruck of Him. But I want to let you know, He's the same God on the other side of that threshold. He's the same God who is all-powerful and all-knowing when you're in your car going home today hearing your conversation. He's the same God who looks over your shoulder when you're on that website. He's the same God who knows your living situation. He's the same God who knows the thoughts and the meditations of your heart. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. It's just in this moment you're more aware of Him. We can read in the book of Acts 
that Ananias and Sapphire, that they came before Peter and lied. And God, through the Holy Spirit, killed them right where they stood. If God killed more sinners, there'd be a lot more repenting. But then again, there wouldn't be any more repenting because everybody would be dead. I just want to reiterate that the all-powerful God knows you. And in this moment, He's letting you know of His holiness, His power, and His authority. So He's extending you a moment where you can worship in allness and in fear and trembling. But don't just do it here. Do it in the altar of your car. Do it at work wherever you work. Do it in front of your television because whatever rolls in off your television has to go across that altar too to reach your eyes and your ears. Because if it makes you holy, it makes you pursue Him more, do that. But if it compromises your worship, if it compromises your thoughts towards God, if it, if it, if it misdirects your money, if it dis misdirects your time and your talent to serve other things, then don't do that. They were more afraid of Jesus than the storm. We would do well, church, to follow in their footsteps, to be fearful of a mighty and holy God. Let us not forget that it was God this morning who stirred you awake. It was God who awakened you to allow you to put your feet on the ground, to walk across your room, to get ready for church. It was God this morning who facilitates and keeps you tethered together because He holds all of creation together by the power of His Word. Let us not forget our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-strength, all uncontested and unchallenged. But many times we want to take Him off the throne and put ourselves there. Church, I want to let you know that God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Because we can be happy about wicked things. We can be happy about things that are disgusting and dirty. He'd rather you be holy. Well, does that mean if i gotta, I got to have one or the other? No, Christian. When you are a Christian and you have been truly changed and born again, He changes your affection. And when you are holy, you are truly happy. Because you're walking in His pleasure, honoring Him in all your facets, honoring Him with all your time, your, your energy and your talents. You're honoring Him with all your being. So this morning I, I call you to holiness and be an awestruck of who Jesus is that even creation lays down at His beck and call. But will you? Will you bend the knee to Him? Will you serve Him? The all-powerful God? Well, I'm not today. i got stuff to do. i got a lot of living to do. I put a mini teenagers and a mini infant in the ground who never saw the next day. Today will be, it could be your last day. This could be the last sermon you hear. I call to repentance. I'd rather call you to repentance than call you to come to homecoming or call you to come to truck or treat or call you to do some of our fun activities. I'd rather call you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Amen, preacher. With that being said, I'm going to ask you now to...